On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. God, what a way to end an album. I was thinking about the other day, I'm thinking, wow, she ends album one with The Kick Inside, album two with Hammer Horror, album three with this, album four with Get Out of My House. All four of those songs are like in my top 10 of her songs. Like, I mean, The Morning Fog is a satisfying ending to Hounds of Love, and I know people really love it, but it's more satisfying because it completes the story. It's not like, like those other four album enders are the types of songs where I hear them and I'm like, I feel like I was just kind of like sucked into this vortex and spat out and need to process. <laughs> like, Seriously. This is how you end a, this is how you end an album. I think there are a few points uh, in her, in Kate Bush's career where like she uh, crafts one song that's just um, musically, lyrically, thematically, just ahead of everything she's done before, like say uh, earlier examples would be um, Wuthering Heights or The Kick Inside. I, I think this is one of those instances. Like after this, I'd say maybe uh, Night of the Swallow or Jig of Life or run, or even Running Up the Hill. But yeah, this is like, this is like probably a top two Kate Bush songs for me. And that it's just it, it's odd because it's like it's a song. It's it like say she, her her songs are so full of optimism because like I say there's a central theme to her work. It's kind of the inherent magic of the universe and it's not something she abandons here but like say it's like say this whole mystical spiritual thing it's you know it's, the, it's a song where like she sounds like she's given up to Strange Phenomena, the music of Kate Bush. I am Cecily Link, and this week we're going to be talking about the last track on Never Forever, Breathing. Outside Gets inside Ooh, Through her skin With me to talk about the song this week, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Chris. I write the I write the the Kate Bush blog, uh, Dream of Organon, which uh, you can find at katebushsongs.wordpress.com. Uh, basically, there I just uh, roughly chronologically I go through every song in Kate Bush's discography, um, officially released or um, or bootlegged, and just uh, try to uh, just tell the story of Kate Bush in chronological order. I'm Zoe. I spoke about a bunch of other songs on this album and Lionheart 
Um, and Breathing is in my top three Kate Bush songs of all time. Also just one of my favorite songs of all time, period. So I'm really excited to talk about it. And God, what a way to end an album. I was thinking about the other day, I'm thinking, wow, she ends album one with The Kick Inside, album two with Hammer Horror, album three with this, album four with Get Out of My House. All four of those songs are like in my top 10 of her songs. Like, I mean, The Morning Fog is a satisfying ending to Hounds of Love, and I know people really love it, but it's more satisfying because it completes the story. It's not like like those other four album enders are the types of songs where I hear them and I'm like, I feel like I was just kind of like sucked into this vortex and spat out and need you know, to process. <laughs> like, Seriously. This is, how you end a, this is how you end an album. <laughs> so... You had said, when we were kind of first connected on Twitter and everything, you had said right off the bat that you wanted to talk about breathing. Oh, yeah. So what is it about breathing that makes it one of your absolute favorite Kate Bush songs? And feel free to ramble, because I love like letting people ramble and talk about why these songs are so important to them. And I know you've got a lot of thoughts on this song. Well, it's about the end of the world, which is always pleasant, but... Oh, seriously. Yes. Always. Nice happy yeah. subject! <laughs> It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine, um, to quote R.E.M. But... <laughs> yeah, I've got that hit song in my head now. <laughs> <laughs> I have a hurricane, listen to yourself, churn. Um, but yeah, it's um, yeah, I, I guess I'll like say I've, I've always been a fan of uh, fantasy and science fiction, so like the, the world ending is uh, like it's, it's very much a concept that I'm that, that I'm comfortable with uh, exploring and like like say looking at. Like looking outside every day and looking at the news, it like often does feel like I'm facing the apocalypse. So like I, I listen to songs like this and I'm like, yeah, that's about right. And the thing is that, that she takes a very, uh, she takes the absolute, possibly the weirdest angle to the apocalypse ever, which is saying a lot, and that is uh, detailing nuclear, nuclear fallout through the point of view of a fetus. Well, it may be the last song on the album, but it was actually the lead single released on Very April Fourteenth, nineteen eighty. Oh my goodness! Yeah, again, it's interesting because with Hammer Horror, that was the last song on Lionheart, and she released it as a first single. And she did it again here. And it's very unusual for artists to do that, and especially considering this song. I mean, I gather my hypothesis about why she would have made it lead singles because she was so proud of it. You'll talk about later when you quote her, she says mm-hmm. she thinks it's her best thing she'd written to that point. But it, I mean, I think it's, I think it's the strange, her strangest song to up to that point. Mm-hmm. So probably the least obvious is lead single. I mean, when you have Bushka right there, seriously, but all power to her. But it did really well as a single, unlike Hammer Horror, which was the lead single. Uh, for Lionheart, this one went to number 16 on the UK charts, and number 44 in the Netherlands, and number 25 in Belgium, and remained on the UK charts for seven weeks, so almost That's two months. Surprising. Very surprising. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, there's nothing pop about it at all. No. Um, whereas Hammer, even Hammer Horror is more poppy, so, but I don't say that as a bad thing. It's a, it's, it's a masterpiece. I mean, I, I guess though, you know, people were in the mood for Kate Bush and then would just kind of accept anything that she t- that, that she released. But 
I, I don't know. I guess everybody they say 1980. It's very, I, I guess, a very histor- a year full of uh, turmoil. So they thought, eh, why not just listen to the fetus singing about nuclear war? Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying fetus because of her voice. I mean just fetus because of the subject matter. Well, yeah, definitely. Yeah, like, like what's even what's more amazing to me is that like it was successful, like reached number sixteen on the charts and stayed there for seven weeks. Mm-hmm. When let's see what all was going on around there at the time. We had on the charts there was Michael Jackson, Paul McCartney, The Undertones, Motorhead, Blondie with Call Me, The Average White Band. And along comes breathing. And just a. Uh, I mean, I'm glad that there's a point where Kate Bush and Blondie were both charting, but. In the top twenty, yes. <laughs> At least in Britain, they were. And the undertones in there too. That's something. <laughs> oh, and then at number twenty-three, we had theme for Mash. Suicide is painless. <laughs> I mean, isn't that just a Never Forever song? No, not really. Okay. <laughs> oh, it could be. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this reached number 16. It went to number 44 in the Netherlands. It went to number 25 in Belgium. And, like you said, it was on the, the charts for seven weeks. That's... I mean, imagine just walking into, say, a coffee shop and hearing this this song. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't happen now, that's for sure. <laughs> At eight in the morning. Just, like, you're barely awake, haven't had your coffee yet, and you hear someone singing about nuclear awards, like, no, stop, I haven't had my coffee yet, what are you doing? Yeah, this one is, like, I agree with you that it is probably her strangest song up to this point, even stranger than Wuthering Heights, because this one... Structurally, yeah. Structurally, this is prog rock. I can tell... Like, Wuthering Heights has a chorus. I mean, so does breathing, but it's different. Mm-hmm. But each time she does the chorus, either something drops away or something comes mm-hmm. in. Like, and there's movements to it. Like, it it starts in one place and then kind of twists and goes to something else, and then it goes into the chorus, Absolutely. and then and then we get it's to the ending. Oh yeah, I mean, what I love, what makes this song so special for me is that it's its own little universe. I mean, even though the way you're talking about it now, it's it's a self-contained little world mm-hmm. in a song. And she does that with a lot. I mean, most of her songs are their own self-contained little stories. But this, to me, is more than a self-contained story. It's a self-contained world, not mm-hmm. just in the story. Because to me, honestly, like, the story, the lyrics actually... The story itself that it tells isn't even that compelling to me. It's more of the production and the way she tells it, the vocals and the production and everything about how it's done mm-hmm. that make it so mind. I just think this is such a staggering piece of art. It's definitely not for everyone. It's definitely the kind of thing because it's very proggy. People will call it self-indulgent or call it pretentious or like, mm-hmm. you know, but it's, I mean, you can hear it in my voice. Because even thinking about it, I'm completely floored. And I've listened to this song hundreds of times over years. But every time I hear it, every time I hear it, it's just like, I feel like it's just got, like, gobsmacked. It's just, a ma- it's just such a masterpiece. She really did that. <laughs> I find this, I find it very interesting that this was released as the lead single for the yes. album. God, like, how what the do you think that of that? So what do you think of the fact that this song, which... We were talking about it. it's it's got movement to it. It's 
got an unorthodox structure. It's about oh, the, the theme alone is not your typical like sitting around committee kind of song. Mick is a lead single for an album. What do you think of that? It's very Kate Bush. <laughs> Indeed. Mm-hmm. I look and see the week that it peaked. Yeah, the week it peaked was May 18th, 1980. So a month after this single was released, it peaked at number 16. It also was the first single to feature a non-LP track because it had the empty bull ring. You know, it's, fun, like, it's funny you mentioned, like, like they said May 18th was when it peaked. Yep, that's according to officialcharts.com. That's the day that Mount St. Helens erupted. <laughs> I wonder if there's a connection. <laughs> it, it, it's Kate Bush's fault. Kate Bush caused Mount St. Helens to erupt with her song about nuclear war. It's... I guess she did. Dang it, girl. Boy, you were just even, you were just even cooler than I thought you were. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> So I was listening to it again today. And, Me too. Um, I was thinking, like, would this song, what would it make any sense if you didn't know the backstory? Because I'm trying to think that when I first listened, I, I first listened to all her albums in chronological order. So I don't think I knew the backstory, but I don't, but I then researched everything, you know, so I'm not sure. Like, I know that when I first listened to all her work, like the dreaming really stood out for me, that album. I can't remember if this stuff this wasn't like my favorite favorite initially like favorites are not my favorite favorite is Night of the Swallow Mm -hmm. and then Get Out of My House and this those are three songs I think completely create their own little world I think because the production and the vocals are just so interesting you don't even need to know what it's about for to 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 appreciate it but it is about a very specific story, which I'll let you explain. The story of this song is you got a fetus, uh, quote, very much aware of what is going on outside the womb and frightened by nuclear fallout, which implies the song is set either during a nuclear war or post-apocalyptic birth. The lyrics which also refer to the yeah. fetus absorbing nicotine from the mother smoking because, mm-hmm. hey, this is late 70s. Everybody smoked. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of things going on in the world that people were concerned about, but this isn't like, you know, like my dad growing up, he grew up in like, like my parents growing up in the fifties that hide under the desk, you know, mm-hmm. that nuclear war wasn't like the top priority at well, the time. Well, apparently the, um, the inspiration for her writing a song about nuclear fallout was from a documentary that Kate had seen about the effects of nuclear war and while, quote, the tone of the song was inspired by Pink Floyd's The Wall, which I can definitely, yeah. definitely hear. Hence the prog oh, yeah. thing. But this is definitely Pink floyd for sure. I mean, it's interesting because she said that, wow, was inspired by Pink Floyd. I was about to say, yep. Sound. But this, I hear it even more, especially in terms of, yeah, I mean, The Wall is a narrative. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, but I wonder, it's just like nuclear, it's not like she was growing up during the Cuban Missile Crisis, where like everyone was obsessed with nuclear warfare. So it's interesting that that's what kind of 
was at the forefront of her mind. Yep, and it was recorded over three days in the early part of 1980, and they decided to make it the final track on the album. Also, this track includes spoken words that, honestly, I didn't even know were supposed to be full sentences until I looked it up for this episode. (laughs) Mm. Um, The exact words which are missing from the artwork on the album are... In point of fact, it is possible to tell the difference between a small nuclear explosion and a large one by a very simple method. The calling card of a nuclear bomb is the blinding flash that is far more dazzling than any light on Earth, brighter even than the sun itself, and it is by the duration of this flash that we are able to determine the size of the weapon. After the flash, a fireball can be seen to rise, sucking up under the under it sucking up under it the debris, dust, and living things around the area of the explosion. And as this ascends, it soon becomes recognizable as the familiar mushroom cloud. As a demonstration of the flash duration test, let's try and count the number of seconds for the flash emitted by a very small bomb, then a more substantial medium-sized bomb, and finally one of our very powerful high-yield bombs. is about is about it's from the point of view of a fetus of pregnant woman and the fetus is i guess she must be i don't know maybe she's pro-life we'll see i don't know but the fetus is very aware of the fetus it's the fetus basically try like i can't breathe because all this shit is Mm -hmm. like because nuclear war is happening and it's to me what makes the song really powerful and i'm very pro-choice but anyways what makes it very powerful is um it's kind of a cry it's about resilience and mm-hmm. about life and the human will to survive even before it is a human i think there are a few points uh in her in kate bush's career where like she the crafts one song that's just um musically lyrically thematically just ahead of everything she's done before like say uh earlier examples would be um wuthering heights or the kick inside and um Let's see. I, I think this is one of those instances. Like after this, I'd say maybe uh, Night of the Swallow or Jig of Life, but or run, or even Running Up the Hill. But yeah, this is like, this is like probably a top two Kate Bush songs for me. And that it's just it, it's odd because it's like it's a song. It's it like say her her, her songs are so full of optimism because like I say, if there's a central theme to her work. It's kind of the inherent magic of the universe and. It's not something she abandons here, but like say it's, like say this whole mystical spiritual thing. It's you know it's the 
it's a song where like she sounds like she's given up like say the like the mm. protagonist like, just like there's no escape from it this time because like say it's like say Kate Bush she's very much into you know the, the agency of the body and that like even here it's like it's it's getting within like like my radar sends me da- like so well, no not sends send me danger but my instincts tell me to keep breathing mm-hmm. the body just slow, slowly being poisoned it's just this the, 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 I mean, it's very, very incredibly haunting. I mean, not just the lyrical content, but just like the sound. Like, it does not sound like anything else she's makes. I mean, you get like say you get to the more uh, schizoid sounds of the dreaming through this, but even the dreaming doesn't sound like the uh, sound like breathing. I mean, you can see where she starts to go into the dreaming because it yeah. is the song doesn't feel like your usual sort of pop song where they're repeating the same four chords throughout the whole thing. Like this has movements to it. Definitely. Like, I mean, she even says that this is like her, her little symphony and I can totally see that. Yeah. Even rhythmically, it's kind of uh, organic and breathing, isn't it? Like say like you have a Mm -hmm. one measure, four, four, then three, four, then four, four, then two, four. I haven't looked in the sheet music in over a year, but yeah, it's, ah, (laughs) we're breaking out the sheet music. Um, Thank you for uh, explaining why I shouted. <laughs> so, yeah, the the song starts out just for outside gets inside. It's 2-4 four to 4-4, four, four, then 2-4, then to 3-4 for inside or through her. And then for skin, it goes to 2-4. And then I've been out before, but this time it's much safer in is going back to 4-4. Four, four. So, yeah, it's constantly shifting. Yeah. With the time it's, signatures. It's sort of organic, you know, it's like it does like mm-hmm. almost sound like a human being breathing. And it didn't even really hit me until I was listening to this song uh, before we started recording and watching the video, which we'll, we'll get to later in the episode. But at the very end with the backing vocals that it, they're saying, we are all going to die. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, dark stuff. Well, and we'll get to it more when we dig into the actual structure of the song lyrics, but, like, what works so, like, just having a song where you're saying, we're all going to die, it's like, okay, Morrissey, we know. But, like, <laughs> but it's not, like, it doesn't, when you read the lyrics, and this is a song, it's completely different. So the way that's structured is, I mean, we'll get more into this, but the second part of the song is a call and response structure. So you have these male voices saying, like, we're all going to die, then instead and she is the fetus saying let me breathe mm-hmm. so it's kind of to stop like the voices they're saying we're going to die all the dark stuff that's what's coming out from outside to inside as she puts it and then her desperation to survive and move past it is what's breaking through both vo- vocally and sonically so it's really this the fascinating call and response structure where it's not as opposed to like some emo song saying, hey, we're all going to die. We're fucked.
Yeah, I mean, with the production, it's she's got a profit synthesizer on there. She's got electric guitar from Alan Murphy of Smurf playing his guitar refrain. Um, yeah, Brian Beth. She's got Max Middleton. What is a profit synthesizer? Does it mean it's Jesus? <laughs> Jesus synthesizer. No, it is um, the okay. Yeah, the Profit Five is an analog synthesizer manufactured by Sequential Circuits between 1978 and 1984. Uh, with the five voices po- of polyphony, the Profit Five is the first fully programmable polyphonic synthesizer. So it it's a particular kind of synthesizer that you could actually program with your with other sounds. Not quite so kind a of more like the Fairlight. Not quite a fair light, but the same kind of idea that you could yeah. fully program it. And also it had an embedded microprocessor. So uh, this this thing cost a lot of money back then and, and everything, but it, it, it's a particular type of synthesizer. So. Yeah, because there are sounds in this song that I, where I hear them, I'm like, what instrument made that sound? For example, towards the end, there's a sound where it sounds like you're being sucked into a vortex. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. what instrument made that? So that's that's good to know. And yeah, backing vocals by Roy Harper. That's interesting because he's a folk singer that she was a fan of and she covered one of his songs once and did some backing vocals for him. Now he's doing vice versa. Yep. And her drums by Stuart Elliott, who's played with her, who'd played with her before. There's a uh, John Giblin on the fretless bass, Fender Rhodes, got a little uh, electric piano there by Max Middleton. I especially hear the, the, uh, Fender Rhodes in the chorus like when she right after she sings breathing and you can hear like a bah, 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 kind of thing or during mm-hmm. like the out 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 right and right before it gets into the like the John we are all going to die there's like a bah, 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 that yeah, yeah, that part. There. yeah that's a Fender yeah. Rhodes that's an electric piano there I love the electric okay, piano they don't use was, yeah they don't use electric was, piano much what... in music anymore <laughs> Yeah, and that's one of the things where I was wondering. I was like, what instrument is making it? Because I don't know a lot about music. So I was being like, what, what instrument is making that noise? What's good to know? Which is interesting since uh, that there's a, an electric piano on this song. And then when we, when we get to talking about the, like, the one-off performance of Kate doing this song for Comic Relief in 1986, she was playing on an electric piano. I haven't looked at the video oh. to see if... Yeah, when when she's accompanying herself on an electric piano, and I it sounds it sounds like a normal. I always assumed it was just a regular piano. No, it's an electric piano. I will have to oh. look at the video to see what kind it is, like if it's even visible, really, because it's kind of an older yeah. video. But yeah, but yeah, a lot of it, a lot of different things going on in the production in the song, like for sure. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Which is just neat that she eventually did that live version for Comic Relief in 1986 where it was just her and an electric piano, nobody else behind her. So this, she took this song that was so produced and then put it back to just, oh yeah, me playing it on the piano like she probably did for these musicians before they went and added mm-hmm. stuff. Was just, yeah. ugh, it's just, well, well, we'll get into that part when we get to it anyway. Cross that bridge when we get there.
like through the the, the through the Kate Bush encyclopedia page and like she talked she talked about this a she, lot a lot. Yeah, I so I can I I pulled out a lot of quotes for her and I mean I can tell just like the sheer amount of notes for her talking about the song that obviously this was something she was really proud of. This pardon the pun considering the song this was her baby. Oh. Like, this was her, she recorded this over three days, she recorded this over three days in 1980, and I know in Under the Ivy, there was a, there was a lot of talk about how she had talked with the musicians, like, trying to get them to, rather than just rote play the notes, that she wanted a lot of emotion in them, which was something that was difficult for her to try and convey to them, because these were session musicians, like, okay, okay, it says we're supposed to play a C chord, okay. Hey, here we play a C chord. Hey, but, like C, but play it in C flat sharp. Or play it like you're about to cry or something like that. Or just Okay, like this, but in the key of Q. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like apparently that song was just like absolutely hell to, to get right. Like it just, like she really struggled over those few days. But I mean, with, well, that was instructive with that brief. Yeah, but like, with, like I'd rather much hear a song she struggled with than something she just uh, settled for. Exactly. And I can understand why she pushed the way she did for the song because it is, it should feel like a very breathing human song. Yeah. Since it is, it is considering the subject matter. Yeah, it's a, like a song that keeps moving too. Like say, um, it's probably closest to um the demo, which we don't have, obviously. But, but yeah, like say, like it starts out like say it's like it's just the piano, and then like slowly bringing in other instruments. And even like, but the other instruments, I mean, there, there's the drum, there's drums from Stuart Elliott, who, you know, he's popped up, he popped up on um, all of her first two, three albums, um, some fretless bass, she got some oh. Fender Rhodes, she got Brian Bath and Alan Murphy playing electric guitar, a Prophet synthesizer, got hmm. some Prophet synthesizer from Larry Fast, we got some percussion from Morris Pert, and backing vocals from Roy Harper. So she's like this is a, t- a team of nine musicians working on this song then. So that's mm-hmm. like a lot of people trying to get it right. And then of course Kate singing, singing and playing piano and doing the backing vocals. I love the way she does her backing vocals on this song. Oh yeah. Especially after the 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 at the end of the second verse. I'm trying to pull up the the lyrics where there's like a bunch of ahs behind her. Oh, yeah. only the fools blew it. You and me knew life itself is breathing. Ooh. I love yeah, the Oz back there. It's just like, oh my goodness. It just yeah. like sends shivers down your spine. Yeah, it's this, like, it's cathartic. It is just, like, 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 the, like was it, what was that lyric you said? Like, only the fools knew? or Yeah, only the fools blew it. You and me knew life itself is breathing. Well, there's a, there's another loaded lyric. This song and Army Dreamers fit, I mean, we kind of talked about this in Army Dreamers, that, you know, these two songs, Breathing and Army Dreamers, feel like they fit very well together, even though they're so different in terms of production, because one is a a waltzy, happy-sounding folk sort of song, and this is like prog rock. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's just this... Like it's a very strange song, and it, like it is very nineteen 
7980 and its concerns. Like, I'm trying to remember where the Cold War was in its progression at the time, but, like, it was, like, clearly, like, enough where, like, people were still writing songs about nuclear war. Like, say, like, usually her, like, her folk songs tend to be more, you know, like, call back to Irish-English music, but this, you know, it's it's more, like, say, 60s, uh, you know, maybe American-British folk songs, which uh, would, would sing about nuclear war, like, say... Well, Dylan's Masters of War, only, like, this does not identify villains as such, but, like, say, like, what's, like, like only the fools blew it. So, like, there's still, like, someone is to blame there. Mm-hmm. Like, say, uh, what was, like, what was happening in 1979? Well, when, when we were going through our history, we, in a, at least in our, our U.S. history class, we never made it up to the 80s. We were lucky to make it to the 60s, which always disappointed yes. me because I wanted to get up to the more modern stuff where, oh, gee, I could ask my parents what it was like to going through this in the 70s or something like that. Yeah, I attended Catholic school, so we didn't get past oh. the past the 17th century. But... Oh, jeez. It was awful. It was. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, let's see. It's. Uh... Like so, Reagan was taking over at the time, so there was obviously this big, a big change of a foreign policy approach during the Soviet Union. So, like, there's obviously a lot of a uh, stress in the atmosphere. I mean, maybe not, maybe not nuclear fallout, but stress. Mm-hmm. I mean, my parents remember in in the '60s and '70s when they were kids having um, having bomb drills. Oh yeah. Having to hide under your desk because of something, because in case something happens. And there were those uh, freaky PSAs, like um, like have you seen that a uh, famous uh, Daisy PSA uh, for the nuclear bombs? But yeah, so but for anybody who doesn't know, it's uh, basically this little girl walking around in a field, and she's uh like she picks up this flower and like tearing off petals and like counting like one, two, three, and then it gets replaced by this. Uh, but it's a big dramatic countdown, like, nuclear bomb goes off. And it's just this hilariously, like, fucked up little PSA. But, yeah, that's the sort of world that Kate Bush had grown up in. Although I'm not sure that the, if the, the Red Scare was, say, as much a thing as in England. Well, I know it was here. I mean, my yes. parents remember a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. So... And uh, I really like this quote from Kate. Um, this is from the Kate Bush Club newsletter in 1980. You know, back when she used to talk extensively about her songs. Um, I wanted to write a song and I came up with some chords which sounded to me very dramatic. Then up popped Tom the line. Outside. <laughs> it's, it actually, it's funny. Inside. That actually reminds me a lot of Hammer. The, the opening chord reminds me a lot of the opening chord of Hammer Horror. Like this tension. Uh, actually, let me see. I don't think they're quite in the same key. They are def- Both of them are in a minor key for sure. No, it's they, they're not the same, but it's just there's something about the mood where you're like all of a sudden there's a very tense mood. It's like duh, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. Up pop the line. Outside gets inside. Uh, as I was trying to piece the song together, and I thought it'd be good to write a song about a baby inside the womb. Then I came to a right. chorus piece. I was just thinking about that, yeah. <laughs> and decided that the obvious word to go there was breathing. And I thought automatically that it had been done before. 
But asking around, I couldn't understand why it hadn't because it's such a good word. Then breathing and the baby turned into the concept of life and the last form of life that would be around. That would be a baby that was about to be born after the blast. It was a very personal song. I thought at the time that it was self-indulgent and it was something I just did for myself, really. For me, it's a statement that I hope won't happen. Yeah, it's funny that the first thing she thought of was outside gets inside. I think it's such a powerful opening. Outside gets inside through her skin. It's just, even if you don't know what the song is about, that just is such vivid and poetic and beautiful imagery. So it's cool that the whole song sprung from there. Yeah, I've been out before, but this time it's much safer in. Yeah, what's up with it? So she's a reincarnated Venus. It, I've been that's... out before, but this time it's just safer in. Yeah. I've heard some people say that. That she's it's actually a reincarnated Venus. Last night in the sky, such a bright light, my radar send me danger, but my instincts tell me to keep breathing. Yeah, just so and the way she sings it is mm-hmm. re, is what really makes it amazing. The way she's the last night in the sky, such a bright light. The way she's such a bright light. It, I, I'm such a broken record, but I just what I love about her I say this all the time, what she does so well is that you she's really living and breathing <laughs> breathing. The song. <laughs> like when she says such a bright light, you hear the wonder in her voice of seeing that bright light. And it's like this childlike wonder. And it's, she's always capturing the emotion in the words and not just singing the words. She's living those words. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful. Just looking over the lyrics just in general, other than the the lyric that you said you really like with uh, the chips of plutonium, that mm-hmm. you don't even really know if it's a nuclear blast. Right. I mean, last night in the sky is such a bright light. I mean, that could be, oh, hey, Haley's Comet. Hey. Yeah, an airplane, anything. I mean, I think, I think that's why this song can be more broad and universal because for example she's talking about breathing my mother and breathing her nicotine breathing and fallout i mean look where our planet's up look how our planet is now you know i mean it doesn't even you i mean yes it's a fetus in nuclear war but it can just be about a paranoid like this definitely plays in paranoia people have about like chemicals and all toxic stuff in the air right now mm-hmm. makes you wonder if when she was like when she was pregnant, she was like, oh, I only have natural things when I'm pregnant or something. <laughs> One yeah. of those moms. <laughs> well, I read she gave up smoking. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I would hope, but yeah. I would hope. Yes. So definitely. Uh, so that's... And it's funny because with breathing her nicotine, I, I read an interview with her from this time where she actually comments in that line. She's like, oh, I know I smoke and I know it's so bad mm. and I shouldn't do it, but I can't help it. But so she's kind of calling herself out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, that's just one thing that Kate said about music about the song. She also has called she also called it her little symphony. Mm-hmm. Um, quote, because I think every writer, whether they admit it or not, loves the idea of writing their own symphony. I agree. Yeah. 
then that's like what I was saying. This song feels like it contains an entire universe. It's not just a song. Like it is a complete symphony. And I can hear in her vocal the way that, especially toward the end, when she gets, when they're doing the, we are all going to die. And she doesn't, you know, let me breathe. She gets really raw there. Oh, God, yeah. And it feels like, okay, I can see, you know, it's like in hindsight, like 38 years later, where she ended up going on the dreaming because of her, like, she's allowing her voice to get even more raw than she ever has. Yeah, and it's again where her vocal performance is in service of the emotion of the song because it's this desperation to literally, it's life or death. Mm-hmm. And she is at the end, she, her voice is breaking and because she is pleading to be allowed to live. It's literally, it's the highest stakes you can get and the desperation in her voice reflects that and it is, well, I'm going to say breathtaking. That's, I don't know if that was in the context of the song, great word. But it's really remarkable, um, the way her use of her voice as an instrument of a, to convey emotion. And this song is a really primary example of that. And even, like, yeah, it's, in hindsight, completely shows where she's going with the dreaming. I love this song so much that I feel like, controversial statement, whatever, even if she'd like had never made another album after this, she would be a legend anyway, just for these three albums. And also like ending on this note, like I think she would have been more of a footnote in music history than she is had she not made Hounds of Love and Dreaming. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to like a really important figure. She probably would have been viewed as like that weird British chick who made three weird albums. <laughs> yeah. But she still would have been remembered like this mm-hmm. is such an accomplishment she thinks it's the best thing she'd ever written at that point which and she's she's very hard on herself that's mm-hmm. i wonder and it's interesting because she did what she did perform it again live in 1986 so she still must have had some positive regard for it even though she usually kind of trashes all mm-hmm. her anything she's done in the past yeah she says she also says i find this interesting too um The song says something real for me, whereas many of the others haven't quite got to the level that I would like them to reach, though they're trying to. Often it's because the song won't allow it, and that song has allowed everything that I wanted to be done to it. That track was easy to build up. Although it had to be huge, it was just speaking, saying what had to be put on it. In many ways, I think the most exciting thing was making the backing track. The session men had their lines, they understood what the song was about, but at first there was no emotion. And that track was demanding so much emotion. It wasn't until they actually played with feeling that the whole thing took off. When we went and listened, I wanted to cry because of what they had put into it. It was so tender. It meant a lot to me that they had put in as much as they could because it must get hard for session guys. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, They get paid by the hour and so many people don't want to hear the emotion. They want clear, perfect tuning, a good sound. But often the out-of-tuneness, the uncleanliness doesn't matter as much as the emotional content that's in there. I think that's much more important than the technicalities. That was from Fire in the Bush uh, from Zigzag Magazine, 1980. Fire in the bus. That's, yes, that's I not know. A good, that's not a good article title. <laughs> no, it's but, um, not. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that's what makes the song really powerful. That it's about more than just like technical profession. It's about this while it ends up be- like even in the beginning when 
when she's saying I've been out before, but well, the way she's, the, she does this thing where she stresses certain syllables in a way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've been out before, but this time it's, it's you know, like, it's, so she does it in this way where there's just this pleading desperation and there's so much emotion. And she's right that, and it's, it's that, that's what I said earlier, that to me, a good vocalist isn't mm-hmm. the most technically perfect vocalist, but the one who you believe what they're saying the most. And you can tell on this song that she definitely believes everything that she's saying. I mean, she always does. She really does. But yeah, she has to. I mean, it's like it's it's like it's like the characters and the narrators of all her songs possess her whenever she sings it. It really is. She says, I suddenly realized the whole devastation and disgusting arrogance of it all, trying to destroy something that we've not created, the earth. The only thing we are is a breathing mechanism. Everything is breathing. Without it, we're just nothing. And so, again, even though that's a, this song about nuclear war, that still is completely relevant today. I mean, our world is in even worse shape today than it was in 1980. I try not to think about the fact that we might just be very close to a nuclear war with North Korea. Yay. Woo-hoo. Yeah, no, that's, well, no, I mean, that's what's interesting is, like, that wasn't really at the forefront of people's thoughts in 1980, but, like, now it very much is. Uh, very it's much, very yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've, and yes, it's a little bit. I have friends who have said, I don't want to have children because I don't think this world is going to be a bit of like a place that'll be a good place to be living. You know, they don't want their baby. They don't want infant, their, their infants to feel like the fetus and breathing. <sighs> and she says that she also calls it, she says it's a fetus, but it's more of a spiritual being. It has all the senses, sight, smell, touch, taste, and hearing. And it knows what's going on outside the mother's womb. Yet it wants desperately to carry on living, as we all do, of course. And yeah, as I said, I think it's the song mm-hmm. about the will to, to live. Nuclear fallout is something we're all aware of and worried about happening in our lives. There's so much I love in this song. So what, let's see, favorite moments. Yeah, the urgency urgency in her voice and says i've been out before mm-hmm. but this time it's much safer in this is the way she stresses certain syllables she's so committed that you fully believe every word of what she's saying i've been out before but this time it's much safer in and another moment i really loved and underneath as she says last night her again this her british accent is especially strong in this song Mm-hmm. Of all of them, like very tough. But there's last night, the drum beat underneath. Wow, that moment oh, yeah. really blows me away. <laughs> that is one of my favorite moments. It's of production in all of her work. It's so ominous, and it's also a little nice co- connection to the song that preceded it, Army Dreamers, of this like military kind of drum beat thing. But that little drum beat underneath is just so ominous and foreboding. It's just, it's just absolutely perfect. It's one of the things that makes the song perfect to me. And then, yeah, I just had a British accent really strong. Mm-hmm. In the song I love, and she says, We've lost that chance. We're the first and last. It's great, mm-hmm. you know? We've lost our chance. We're the first and last. After the blood. Um, so that's another. And yeah, and as I said earlier, call and response format is just genius. Because on mm-hmm. its own, saying, we are all going to die, as I said, like, 
that's just okay, like that's just some mid 2000s emo song but <laughs> formatted as a call response with her basically screaming about saying let me breathe works brilliantly as a juxtaposition between impending doom and the human will to survive and perseverance in the face of doom and that's ultimately what this song i think is about Oh, so what do you think of the only time that Kate Bush has ever performed this song live? I think it's one of her best uh, live performances. Like say, like say it's so sort of, like, they say sort of like a, I mean, I, I don't want to compare uh, Kate Bush and Tori Amos too much because I think that's a reductive approach that's unfair to both of them. But I think- Thank I think you. Is, like, yes. <laughs> Yeah, like, it is mostly just, you know, saying, like, oh, hey, here are two uh, women artists. I know we have to compare them in every single aspect. But, like, I think, say, like, in this in this like this case, I think it is very much, she's doing that sort of Tori Amos thing where she'll take, you know, what like, what's in the studio has, like, a ton of instruments and just pare it down to a piano song, but, like, just in a way that really works. Yeah, I think that, that, that's, a, that's a gorgeous performance, though. It's just, uh, like, she performed that at the Secret Policeman's Ball, right? Uh. It was a comic relief concert. Oh, I was close. But yeah, that's um, uh, that's um, not a comic relief song. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's, it's no do bears. Oh goodness, it'll be interesting when I get to that one. Um. Yes. <laughs> the, the, one of the first things that hit me uh, when I started writing the blog is like, I'm gonna have to write about that song someday. You know, she didn't write it, but she performed it. Like, I'm going to have to talk about Rocket Man when I get to that one. I'm so sorry. <laughs> See, I actually really like her version of Rocket Man. I mean, she she makes it her own, and I'm so glad it's not a karaoke-type version. I mean, yeah, that's 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 a relief. It's it's very much Kate Bush's Rocket Man. Like, it's not, she's not just trying to sound like Elton John. I yeah. mean, you have all her early demos to sound like Elton John. But. I mean, what I think is really striking about... Kate performing this just girl in electric piano style. Yeah. That even with it, just her voice and piano, it's still a beautiful song mm-hmm. and it's still haunting, especially at the end where she's singing a quick breathing deep. Oh yeah. And that she's got still got a little bit of the upper range for doing, you know, leave us or leave us or give us something to breathe. Yeah. She's like, she's, I mean, she's still moving around. Like there's a thing and like, even, you take away this with the effects. I mean, they they elevate. You know, with it's just this melodically great song. It's a, like I mean, like something like I minimal mean, vocally. I mean, even though she's taking it down a notch for that performance, she's still you know moving constantly. Like like she doesn't lose any urgency there. It's interesting also, like to like you were talking about that she took the song that was very produced and pared it down to probably just how she wrote the song. Yeah. Originally, and I like hearing that that she just took a and god it really makes me wish that she would have done this kind of thing more yes so like i mean just like and again it's starting to bring it back to tori but like just do the tori amos thing just take your piano around the world play 120 shows a year okay maybe mm-hmm. not but yeah just a kate bush unplugged just give us the kate bush unplugged album exactly have that replace director's cut <laughs> 
I have still not listened to that album, and I'm not really, I'm not really in a hurry to hear it before I have to write about it. There was only ever one live performance of this song, and it was in 1986. It was on April 25th, 1986, at the Shaftesbury Theater in London's West End. It was a solo version, Kate singing this and accompanying herself on an electric piano doing this for a comic relief show and why she chose this song who knows I but because like thinking about like not-for-profit charity things it's kind of political type song mm, true but either way i'm glad that at least there is a version of her singing this live since we've gotten mm-hmm. up to the point of her career where Kate really doesn't do like singing live stuff anymore, which is and really it's a, yeah. such a shame. Cause and it's especially great to hear this live because this is a song, like pretty much everything on the dreaming that you would almost think is unperformable. Mm-hmm. It's so it's all about the production. Oh yeah. And then you hear her play on the piano. You're like, Oh, you can actually perform this. Okay. I wouldn't like I would never think of this as like you said it kind of is a strange choice for forms it's not it's so production heavy but when you strip oh, yeah. it down it still works um it's, I mean it doesn't work as well for, you said you like it better it doesn't work nearly as well for me but um well it depends on my mood but it's interesting that it's yeah because sometimes if I'm in the mood like if I'm just in like a chill sort of cape mood like I want to listen to just her playing piano or playing something and singing then I turn to this one but I do mm-hmm. like the more produced version and its various movements that you've got all these other instruments kind of coming in and out in and out yeah like breathing I like the whole... yeah I feel like even if you're feeling chill the live version very not chill because like, I really in the live version my favorite moment is when she she goes when she's quick breathing deep she says it with a lot of urgency it's really moving mm-hmm. um so it's still I think because of the subject ma- matter and she still is singing with a lot of urgency and it's very with the opening chord is so tense like done outside you know mm-hmm. it's such a tense opening chord I'm like Nothing is not gonna be chill. Whereas, like, I can put on her demos and like feel pretty chill. I'm glad it exists. I'm glad somebody recorded this thing. Cause... And I'm glad they recorded it on video. And yeah, and they got it on video too. Like, oh, I wish that they somebody had done that for, um, for Blow Away. I know. Because oh, like, why I'm, was yeah. somebody pulled like this shit? Come on. <laughs> I know, or even record it all. But I really like watching live. Well, she's very. She's wearing the world's ugliest outfit, um, but it's the it's nineteen eighty six. Yeah, so it's nineteen eighty six. So it's wearing the world's ugliest outfit. It's just like it basically is like it's like you know talking heads not making sense. It kind of looks like that type of suit thing, um, but the bright mustard yellow. But any, but she looks gorgeous. Um, she's sitting at the piano and playing it, and then I I just really love like you just don't. I just love this one, this video of it, which is on YouTube. You look at Breathing Live, Kate Bush. Yep. I just love that because you don't get to see her perform live, you know? You, mm. It's something we don't see. So it's really great. And there's a moment at the right when she finishes, she's really cute. She smiles. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of like a little, like, she, 
throughout and even before the dawn like after every song she says thank you thank you she's she always she's aware of performing and aware of her audience and grateful for her audience in a way that I find very moving and humble um like most people aren't gonna like smile and say thank you after, after performing after getting applause most rock yeah. stars you know but she does and the smile and she has this thing where when she smiles she has this dimple in her cheek it's really cute um yeah, I really like that moment because it's like she just performed this really intense song and then she's doing a cute little smile. Gets inside ooh, through her skin. I've been out before, but this time it's much safer in last night in the sky. Ooh, such a bright light. My radar sent me danger, but my instincts tell me to keep Yep. And 
it's to me listening to this song is a sad reminder of the Mm. fact that Kate does not tour. Because one of my favorite things is going to hear a favorite artist live and having them switch up a song. Like they'll add an extra verse or they'll take away something Mm -hmm. or they'll extend something. And we don't get that with Kate. We don't have tons of live versions to pour through, which, I mean, is good for me making this podcast. I don't have like 50,000 versions of breathing to go through but at the same time it's it's a testament to how well structured this song and most of her songs are that she can take away the production and just play it girl and piano style and it still sounds fucking beautiful i mean well i always wonder i so no song from the dreaming has ever been performed live mm -mm. i'm still alive after saying that i'm not break down no, anyway. I actually did have that thought the other day that, oh, wait a I minute. Think... No songs from the Dreaming have ever been ever. sung live. So there was a rumor, I don't remember I heard it, that apparently she considered doing Sat in Your Laugh Before the Dawn. I would have died. Oh, my God. I've anyways, heard that rumor, too. So the reason I bring that up is because, again, those songs seem unperformable. And breathing to me, if I hear it, seems unperformable. Like, it seems like something would not be possible to perform live. But, and then I hear the live version, I think, if she was able to do that, maybe she could have somehow done, like, a piano-based Sunset and Gaffa. I don't, you know? I, oh, yeah. Well, that one, I think, is because it also starts out piano, whereas some of the other ones don't have any piano at all. I think maybe for this, she was able to do it because it does have a piano base, whereas the Dreaming, she was composing, she wasn't even composing the songs with the piano at that point. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it does make you wonder, like, Oh, how could, but but a live version of Leave It Open have been like, I think I'll just like be sitting on the subway and like get, think about that and get really sad randomly. So if you ever mm-hmm. see me, if you're here, red, if you're in New York, see a redhead wearing Kate Bush dreaming t-shirt, getting sad, looking look sad, I'm probably thinking, if it's me and I'm thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that live performance. And then there's, since this was a single, there was a music well, video. There's also, speaking of live performance, oh, mm-hmm. one other thing that just came to mind is it is a double bind. It's like what you're just saying is it's, it's a sad reminder of her, of her not touring. And it's very upsetting. We don't get to hear this. If she did tour, we wouldn't have the work of hers that we have, though. That is true. That's so. the thing. It's like the reason she, and she's been very transparent. She's like the reason I don't tour, it's not like all these rumors about I'm a crazy hermit or whatever. It's because I'm obsessive about the production and work 12 hours a day on it. So if, if she were to perform, if she were to take time out to perform live, she wouldn't have had the time for the production. So the, you know, it's like a trip, it's a double bind. Yep. So let's see, um, since this was a single, that also means that there was a music video. <laughs> okay, so I'm with you. I don't really like it very much. So, so I'm, okay, as anyone who's listening to this podcast more long-term knows, I like her being as campy and as over-the-top as possible. Like, bring it on. You know, be as like, make the straight men hate you as much as you possibly can. Do it. 
Um, but in this case, I'm not really a fan of this video. I don't think the, because I think that the video, I mean, so the video, if you've not seen it, she's, I mean, this is Kate literal Bush here. This is the woman who shivers when she sings the words, I'm so cold. So she is in a literal womb, like bubble boy or yeah. whatever that was, you know, the, the, so she's in a plastic womb with a fucking, sorry, with a freaking umbilical cord. Like it has, she has an umbilical cord. It is that literal. Um, pretending to be a fetus in her womb. So to me, I know, as much as I normally love her being as over the top as possible, this song is so powerful and, and rich and deep. But I think that the campiness of the video and its literalism dilutes the song's power. So like if I were to have watched just the video, I wouldn't really be focusing on the song. And I feel similarly actually about the title track of The Dreaming. That mm-hmm. I mean, I love that video. I actually, that thing I actually love, but more in a silly way because I I know the dance to it, and it's like the most white, it's the most holy, like the whitest dancing of all time, mm-hmm. and it's really funny. But with both of those songs, both songs are very dark and foreboding, and then you have these videos that are silly and to me it takes away from the power of the song and like for example a song like hammer horror as i mentioned that episode i love that song and i love that video that video is ridiculous it is the silliest video ever they're literally it's so silly but it works because the song is so campy like yes it's dramatic but it's also campy and theatrical whereas Mm -hmm. this song isn't really campy to me this is more just overwhelmingly powerful in a like tidal wave of emotions kind of way. Um, so I feel like the video of her actually being a literal fetus with an umbilical cord takes away from the song's power. And, but, but her makeup looks really good in it. Yeah, she does look like great makeup wise. Oh yeah. <laughs> good makeup, good makeup. I think that's what it is. Like, I was trying to figure out why I don't like the video very much. And I think, and I really believe it's what you were saying, that it's just the literalness of it takes away from the power of the song. Right. And it's hard to imagine, like, what else would she have done for a video, you know? But I just would have, I would have maybe had, I just would rather be like, nope. That's kind of why I like, I almost would just prefer there wasn't a music video for this song, even though it was a single, because there had to be. But I think that it just, it's so, it's so vivid that you don't even need a video. Like, I think mm-hmm. part of the reason why I love a lot of the songs for the second half of The Dreaming so much is because none of them have videos. So I'm kind of able to just have them exist in my head. In your own head. my own visuals. Yeah. Oh, really, really, really interesting to me, though, about this video. Is that it's released in 1980, as was the video for David Bowie's Ashes to Ashes. And both videos mm. have this exact same imagery of there's a moment where she's wading through the water, mm-hmm. like during the give me something to breathe part, and Ashes to Ashes, he does that too. And there definitely wasn't, it wasn't like one of them saw the other's video. It's like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that too. So it just goes, to, to me, she's very similar to Bowie in a lot of ways. I see her kind of as like, I wish, I feel like if she was not a woman, she would get more of the respect that Bowie gets in America. 
but um, but it's to me it's really sad. I also okay, like let's get personal. I call her my mom. He's like my spiritual dad. So <laughs> I like my parents are doing the same thing at the same time. You know, um, so it's it's just really a funny coincidence that her and David Bowie were both doing this. Like they had the exact same part in these iconic music videos. But interesting is with this, I do watch her videos constantly. Like so, when I go to the gym, I just watch music videos. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, I'm just rewatching the same Kate Bush ones over and over. But to be honest, so um, but I just rarely watch this one. I just it's funny. Like there's a certain I just whereas like I'll rewatch Hammer Horror, Running Up That Hill. Like I'll watch film over and over, and even the, the Dreaming. But this I don't really watch it often it's a little cringy for me but I feel weird saying that because I'm always that person who fights who's like no don't call her cringy for being campy but to me the campiness doesn't work for this song yeah I like the ending part with like the just the effects that they put on the video when at the part where she's wading through the water which reminds me that part reminds me of stories I read about um survive about people the the people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki that mm-hmm. they were running out into the water to try and put themselves out after the blast Jeez. yeah Oof. I'd read stories well, of that also- so yeah. it, it was oh it came from it came from a story that I read in my French class I can't remember what story it was it was by Marguerite Duras and it oh, was she's good yeah and it was oh i think it was just hiroshima hiroshima mon amour oh, we were reading yeah. that in french Did you class see the movie? <laughs> yeah i watched we actually watched the movie after we uh, reread the book in french class and oh. it, it was it's this story about these two i think one of them survived hiroshima and the other didn't i can't quite remember because it's been a while yeah i but a, well i'm a big i love the movie um it's about a french woman and a Japanese man who mm-hmm. meet in Hiroshima. Yeah. Yeah. And it, oh, it was for my like Asian studies through French class or France and Asia. It was one of these specialized classes I took, you know, being a French major. And the Japanese man recalls people running out into the water because they mm-hmm. were on fire. And so that ending, when I would watch the video again before we were talking, it made me think of that part and me going, going, ooh, kind of getting the shivers a little bit. Yeah, interesting. I wouldn't have made that connection because she's wearing a space. Her and all the people in the video, she's waiting with a group of people, including Patty, of course, some others. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but they're wearing spacesuits. So I'm like, mm. I feel like the spacesuits are meant to kind of insulate them from the nuclear fallout. But like, you can't, but yeah, it's, it's a, yeah, it doesn't really make any sense. Again, even though I'm not a fan of the video, I also ask myself, what would she... I mean, it's a single, so happy video, so what would she have done? I can't think of anything else she would have done, either. Alright, so, any last thoughts about breathing? I... Oh, we're kind of wrapping up the episode here. I think I've uh, I think I've said my piece, but yeah, I think uh, if I have uh, further thoughts, you'll be able to read them on my blog in a couple years' time. And so, what's the latest blog blog, blog post on Dream of Working on that people can go to? 
Um, well, at, at time of recording, uh, the most recent uh, posted entry is uh, on five uh, Phoenix demos uh, called... And I'm loading the website because I can't remember what I've written. <laughs> uh, pick the rare flower on fire inside a snowball, so soft, uh, nevertheless you'll do, stranded on the moon base. Which I'm pretty sure is the only piece of Kate Bush criticism ever that uses the phrase horny on main. <laughs> and uh, next up is, uh, well, my next, uh, the entry I'm working on right now is uh, Violin, which will obviously uh, cite this podcast. So you can, uh, so I'd like to say, like say, if you go to the site, you can uh, find a link back to the podcast you're listening to right now. And where can people find your blog? I am uh, at Kate Bush, I'm at katebushsongs.wordpress.com Awesome, I look forward to reading more of your entries about Kate Bush's songs. Thanks, I'm always excited to hear your podcasts. Indeed. And thank you so much, speaking of podcasts, thank you so much for being on the episode today to talk about one of your favorite, favorite Kate Bush songs, Breathing. It's been a blast, thank you. Indeed. I think we pretty much did everything for Breathing. Pretty much. I mean, yeah, this is top three. I mean, mm-hmm. for me to say that something's a top three Kate Bush song for me is saying a lot because her works are the holy text for me. So, yeah, I mean, I just think that this song really establishes her as one of the great artists of our time. I think even, as I said earlier, if she had never made another album after Never Forever, Mm-hmm. This song, even on its own, would still mark her as as a truly wonderful artist, and I'm so glad that she did continue making music after this. Mm-hmm. So that because as I think she would have been pre- considered like kind of like a one-off footnote type thing if she hadn't. But I think even just this album, and it's such a perfect ending to this album. It really is. I mean, yeah, like, when you, I think. Yeah, like you're just how where else would it have gone? You're just gonna, I'm gonna stick this like three songs in, you know, like <laughs> yeah, it has, like, she just like like on, I mean, like with her preceding two albums, and like she will on her next album, you just it ends and you're just sitting there like, oh man, I have a lot to absorb right now, but especially especially this one and get out of my house, like you really just like wow, okay. I just got like hit with a baseball bat and need to like mm-hmm. get down. Um, it's such a masterpiece in every in every way: production, vocal, structure, everything. Thank you, Kate Bush, for making this song. Thank you for existing. If you have a favorite Kate Bush song or songs that you want to talk about for a future episode, or if you know something about this week's song that we didn't get to, here's where you can contact me. You can contact me through my website, kbcast.linkmedia.com. That's link with an E. You can email me, kbcast at linkmedia.com. Again, that's link with an E. You can find me on Twitter at StrangeKateCast. And you can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Podcast. Join us in a few weeks for the first B-side episode of this season where I will get to talk with Zoe from this episode all about the empty bullring. See everybody then.
I can't believe. I, I just cannot believe that now St. Helens is Kate Bush's fault. That's. I mean, Kate is God, so. Yes, Kate <laughs> Bush is God. She creates everything. <laughs> I mean, now that just makes uh, running up with Hill even more narcissistic, and like she's like she's promising to make a deal with God. I'm like, you're already God, dude. Stop it. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who kill their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.